This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Um, we also have evidence that tells us that there are very significant gender stereotypes in the education system and in the way that teachers are teaching. And these stereotypes are actually being passed on to the young people, to the children themselves. Um, we have data from the PISA test. PISA, which you may be aware of, is a sure. standardized test um, that is uh, given to 15-year-olds across many different countries. And one of the more interesting findings from the PISA test is that the 15-year-old girls and boys already express uh, gender-biased attitudes in terms of which subjects mm -hmm. they believe girls and boys should study. Mm -hmm. So girls, uh, boys and girls believe that boys should study ICT, for example, compared to girls. Mm -hmm. um, and this is 15-year-olds we're talking about in school. So you can see how early and how pernicious the gender bias is in our education systems. Um, I also wanted to mention as well that once a girl is out of school or a woman is out of employment, education or training, NEAT as we call it, um, they are much more likely to be stuck in these, in these patterns. It's very difficult to, to get them back into education, into training, for example. It's not impossible. Of course, we can do it and we have strategies for doing so. But once they're stuck, then they're in an intergenerational cycle of poverty, of child marriage, of high fertility. Um, and we all know that there are many other things that, um, that, that are associated with that. Um, and then the last point I want to make really is about the quality of education. And, and for, for us at UNICEF, this really speaks to the fundamentals of the education system. The education systems in many countries around the world, um, including the one that I'm in now, are simply not up to the task in terms of preparing young people and young and girls in particular for the demands of the 21st century. Um, I wanted to share with you a quote from one of the, the adolescent girls that, um, that work in one of our programs here that we've reached. Uh, her name is Leila, um, and she's a teenager in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And uh, this is something she told us. She says, I will be brutally honest and tell you that I really do not like our school system mm -hmm. and that we most surely need to take a step up with technology. Definitely some things need to be changed in Bosnia and Herzegovina. We have to bring these new changes to learn about new technologies and not to learn about things taught in schools mm -hmm. 20 years ago. So I'm sure that comment may apply to many other school systems in the world. Right. They're simply not modernizing. They're not teaching young people, young girls, the skills they need to compete, to be, uh, to be entrepreneurs, to be, to be employers, employees, and, and to be citizens in the way that we need um, in, in today's world. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's, time, a global, that's a global problem that you're, you're yes. Uh, referring to. Yes, yeah. absolutely, exactly. And that's why a systemic approach is so important, you mm -hmm. know. We can tinker around the edges, that's fine, but we will not have impact at scale. It really is about transforming the right. education system and I, uh, to be relevant. Gita, I'm using this opportunity to, uh, to ask you, so from the UN, a UNICEF point of view, curricula that you pointed out to, school curricula, mm -hmm. to be modernized, to be adapted to gender uh, and mm -hmm. their aspirations of girls, is that getting anywhere? Any, any, any chance? Yeah? I mean, curriculum reform is uh, <laughs> it's a complicated one, as, yeah. as any education professional will tell you, and it can take, uh, it can take years, right. uh, honestly. Yeah. Um, but it is something that 
it's at the core of what kids are learning. I mean, that's what we're talking about, right? right? And so that's one very important part of education reform. Another important part is the teacher training aspect, the in-service training, as well as the pre-service training. We need to make sure that teachers understand the gender biases in the classroom that they probably are not even aware of. They're they're often Mm. very unconscious. So it really is about working with the teachers and, of course, also working with the school managers, working with the parents to identify and raise awareness about the different gender biases. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about, Shada, in terms of a solution is uh, is technology. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the full solution. I, I don't want to sound overly rosy, but I do think that we are in a position today that we were not in 20 right. years ago Absolutely. with the rise of uh, connectivity and technology mm-hmm. and more and more young people being very connected you know, on the Internet. And I think this creates many, many opportunities for us to to think more innovatively about how can we harness technology to promote girls' education. Mm-hmm. Um, the other very positive note um, that I wanted to mention is the increasing role of the private sector right. in issues of girls' education and girls' empowerment. Um, just to give you two examples um, that I'm sure colleagues in the room are familiar with, there's the uh, self-esteem project by yeah. Dove or Unilever, and then there's uh, the girl effect by Nike. So these are just two examples. I'm not saying they're the only or the best ones, but they're two quite high-profile examples of how the private sector can be engaged to uh, to meaningfully support girls' empowerment and girls' education. Yeah. And the last thing I wanted to mention is that a new global partnership called Generation Unlimited. That's right. Um, And we have some of the partners are in the room actually today. The European Union is a partner, Aga Khan Foundation. Uh, This is a global partnership that Mm -hmm. was launched in September of last year by the UN Secretary General. And it brings together a wide variety of public and private partners together with young people themselves and CSOs to reinvest in young people between the ages of 10 and 24. And it has three main pillars. The first one is increasing secondary age education. The second one is building skills for employability for young people. And the last one is empowerment with a focus on girls. So as you can see, if we take all of these together, they are very much uh, in line with what we're talking about today. How to get girls in school, how to keep them in school, ensure they're learning something of value. Uh, for their lives and for their communities. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much indeed, Gita. In in fact, Generation Unlimited is something that we wanted to talk about later, so thanks for bringing it in just now. So, Larissa, from your point of view, you've heard Matt and you've heard Gita. What what are your impressions? What are your uh, experiences? Um, Thank you so much for having me here today. I'm coming to you uh, as one face but representing two organizations. One is Teach for All, the global organization and the network Um, that is dedicated to developing leadership across the world to end educational inequity for all. Um, And also, as Teach for Armenia, um, and I'll I'll share about um, both what Teach for All and Teach for Armenia are doing in in this respect. Over the years, I mean, what we do is we we source talented graduates, young professionals, and we we recruit them and we place them into the most underserved schools in various countries, there's 50 partners in the Teach for All network now, um, to work as regular public school teachers for a minimum of two years and to really catalyze transformational educational change for the kids that we're working with. Um, 
Again, there's 50 partners. Teach for Armenia is one of the partners. We've been doing this work for five years, um, and, and we work uh, in public schools, and, and again, they're just the most deprived in, in our country. What we've learned over the years, however, is that we are in this amazing position to really put the people that we serve at the forefront of this conversation. And this has to do with the various things that we're working towards. And, and I really, really connected with what you said, Matt, because um, we really believe that girls, our girls should be lead, leading the conversations and should be le leading mm -hmm. the, the charge for, for the change that we want to see. And so... What we're doing now is we're actually building initiatives, building fellowships so that communities together, and the girls especially, um, whether it's in Armenia or anywhere in the world, um, are not only participating, but are actually leading leading the conversation. So consulted and, 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 and yeah. things are discussed together. Because honestly, the biggest challenge that I see is that a lot of these conversations are top-down, mm -hmm. right? In Armenia, for example, we have a lot of great policies, and mm -hmm. on paper they sound wonderful. Mm -hmm. But then in reality, Armenia is number three after China and India in sex-selective abortion. And, right. you know, and you know, Azerbaijan and Georgia are very close to us um, in those ratios. Also, there's about 100 girls to 114 boys being born in Armenia. So, so the, the question really is, how do people think about girls and, and women, mm. right? And... and we believe that the, the biggest contribution we can be having to this conversation is actually through work with parents, work with communities, and really trying to affect mindsets. Because we can have all the best policies in the, wor in the world, but if people are not on board with this and don't um, take ownership sure. of, of not just the current situation, but what that could possibly mean for the future of the country, for the future of their mm -hmm. work, right, for private companies, public sector uh, entities, so on and so forth, um, then really nothing. I, don't, I mean, yeah, but do you see... Still happen, but it won't be... Exactly, it'll be ad hoc and it'll be sort of unconnected. But do you see people in a country like Armenia, and what you've just said is rather shocking, I didn't know it was number three in terms of uh, gender-selected abortion, but... Do you see the government getting involved? Do you see the private sector coming in? Do you see change happening? Or yes. is it a struggle? Uh, we actually just lived through this incredible revolution. I don't know if you've been following, but just like in this past April, we had a, an incredibly smooth transition of power. Sure. We are a, a, a former Soviet country. And by the way, in, during the Soviet Union, I mean, there was real gender equality. Like, that was one thing, uh, you know, wh whichever side of the spectrum you're on, that, that the Soviet Union did very well. And all, you know, girls were, were in school, all of them at, a, you know, pro practically 100% high literacy rate, so on and so forth. It's very much degraded um, over the last 30 years. And, but with this, the new advent of our um, government, mm. there is not only an effort to write the best policy, but to really engage people at all levels, uh, especially the ones that are being affected by, by this issue the most uh, in this conversation. And... You know, I mean, Armenia doesn't have many resources, and the biggest resource we, we have right now is our developing IT sector. And so there are real uh, initiatives coming from the private sector, from the public sector, to really uh, bring women into right. the IT sphere. And, I mean, I, we just recently looked at this survey, and Armenia is, like, one of the top countries that in terms of women employment in the IT sector. 
So we're going in the right direction, but there's still real mm. deep-rooted mindsets that prevent us from living into our, our fullest potential. And when I speak to the private sector about this, you know, I always say that um, all people are assets, right? And it really, this this isn't this for you could be just smart economics. So why don't we think about it that way too? Yeah, right. Absolutely right. So it's interesting how what things are changing, but perhaps not as fast as uh, enough as as we actually need. But thank you for that also. So Bangyu, uh, I'm going to turn to you now. Uh, your story, your personal story, is a very inspiring one. Uh, so you could perhaps tell us how you. Uh, lived through this experience and wh what education meant for you, means for you, as you try and educate girls uh, in Kenya and in the refugee camps especially. Thank you, Shada, uh, also for the invitation. I'm humbled. Um, if I tell you about uh, my biography, my name is Abangio Ali Aden, uh, 27 years old. Um, I was born and raised uh, in... Kenya, um, particularly uh, in my primary and secondary level, I went to Garissa in Nairobi. Unfortunately, fortunately, I got um, I got assistance from my relatives who took me to school, both primary and secondary level, and then from there. Uh, my mom has always been there for me, mm. supporting me. Uh, she always wanted to be educated, but unfortunately, she never got the opportunity. She's been one person who has always encouraged me. Uh, she'll always tell me, this is your opportunity. I wish I had that opportunity to go to school. Education is the only thing that can make, make you a better person. And uh, through education is the only thing that you can also help other girls uh, from your community. After finishing my high school, I went to a teaching college where I got my diploma uh, to be a primary school teacher. Uh, from there, um, I always wanted to, to work with an NGO so that I'll be able to help the girls in my community because most of them don't attend school. And those who are fortunately to go to school, most of them never make it to finish the primary level. So you can imagine. Uh, I saw that uh, since I got this opportunity, I can take advantage of it, work with the organization to help those little girls. Um, I come from a Somali community uh, who are marginalized, uh, who have a lot of issues, um, social-cultural issues, uh, one of them being female genital mutilation. Sorry to say this, uh, people do confuse religion and culture. FGM is something that is, it's cultural, it's not religion. Female mutilation is the worst thing that a girl can face, especially when she's in school. Um, Currently, I'm working with AFSI Foundation, uh, mentoring and helping Somali girls so that they can get educated and be somebody in their lives. Uh, being a Somali girl who lives in the refugee camp is a very big challenge. They face a lot of challenges. Most of you may, may not even understand 
maybe being in the office, you will not understand. I'm not an expert, but maybe I can share with you a small story uh, about those girls, what they face on a day-to-day basis. They face a lot of challenges. Some of them are defiled at a young age. There's early marriage. Being a Somali is not an easy thing, especially when you're in a refugee camp. Uh, They face defilement, uh, child abuse, child labor, psychosocial issues and stigmas. So I want to be, I am, I am where I am because of education. If it was not education, I will not be here. Shada, I will not you. be here because of, I'm here because of my education. Absolutely. Nangyo, you told me also before that that uh, there was a lack of role models as well in your community. And uh, I, I just wondered, you are a role model. Uh, what, what, you know, you said your mother encouraged you, but you must have had a, a role model as well, someone you wanted to be like? Yes. Uh, we, have, uh, we have very few ladies who are educated and working in the NGO world. There are very few. Unfortunately, less than 10 girls, uh, Somali girls, have always, always wanted uh, to help those little girls in those schools. But I never knew how or how, how can I help those girls. I've, uh, sometimes when you go home, you're forced to cook. You're from school, you're supposed to cook, sweep, do everything. So you're imagining you're in school and you still do this. What about those young girls who are not in school? Mm-hmm. What do they do? What do they go through in a day-to-day basis? A role model, my mom words were always right. encouraging me. You need to do this. You will do this through education. That's it. Okay, thank you very much, Mangyo. We'll come back to you uh, in a minute as well. I just want to turn to Suzanne as well. Thank you very much for that very inspiring story indeed. So, uh, you know, we've heard about different parts of the world, and I, I think we have to acknowledge that we're, we're better off here. Huh? Uh, but is it really that much better in terms of where we still need to go? And I was just wondering from your point of view from the European Commission, I mean, what are you doing to ensure that some of the targets that we set ourselves are actually achieved? Okay, thank you very much. Yes, yes, first of all, I I would like to underline that it is uh, really the the question of helping girls to access education worldwide is a key issue and is something nothing to to under... uh, estimate. So the, the figures are very clear and um, and there is a need to do more. And I have the feeling there is also, on, we have lots of declarations on mm-hmm. G7, G20, um, other in, initiatives which aim to do more. And we also see by now that, for example, projects in development aid, gender is one of the evaluation criteria. Gender action plans have to be in these projects. They have to be involved and, and I think there is also a strong will to do more. Nevertheless, we all have the feeling that it is too little which is done. And and we also have a feeling of a grow. And I think it's a growing gap between our understanding how much gender shapes our societies and the fact how little gender is recognized in political decision-making processes, Mm. in planning, in implementations. And I think this is is one of the the frustrations behind it, that you have really the feeling there is an enormous gap and we could also do more. So we don't really see why there is not more happening. Mm -hmm. This is also why then coming also a little bit more to the European countries, for example. I think that in a way we, we face 
not the same scale of problems, and we should not uh, do yeah. or think that we are in a very similar situation. But, but nevertheless, we see gender issues at play in education, mm -hmm. and, and we also see at the same time that also this is not really massively addressed. So, um, for example, it was already mentioned, looking at PISA results or looking at this. So in education, we try to equip young people with the competences and the skills they need in future. So we, um, we want to have them being able to pursue their careers, to have the right skills, to get engaged in, in work, in, in society, and so on. And that, uh, let alone, is already quite a challenge to make that happen. But if we look at that from the gender perspective, we suddenly see that, for example, boys overall tend to perform lower than girls in, in learning outcomes in reading and in literacy. So then girls, also in most of the European countries, girl, uh, boys, boys perform low than girls. Have I, I maybe have misread it, no? Boys no, no, you low. said right. Boys also drop out more out of school. This is also another issue which is clear. So obviously there is an issue with boys and, and simply learning, going to school, reading books seems not to be a boy issue. But in fact we do not know very much about the reasons why that is the case. So there are some theories around, for example, like that the, the teaching force is predominantly female mm -hmm. and that makes it difficult for boys. But this in a way turns another gender issue around again say, because obviously the teaching profession nowadays is not very, very attractive to men. And that's also something to look at. Then boys and girls fare equal in science and technology, in science and math. But then if, if we look at the later age, and that was already mentioned, girls do not pick up a careers in, in IT and in, in very fields of, of engineering and, and science. Although there's a lack of engineers, there's a lack of IT stuff, and there are promising careers ahead, but girls obviously don't see that as, as their part or as their issue to, to engage in that. And in, um, in developing countries, but I think I would not really subscribe that it is not the case in Europe, in many families, investing in the education of girls is not seen as a key issue and as something which pays off in the longer run. So really? I think still? I, I would assume that there are still some areas, and it is also very much linked to probably social background and concrete situations. So in, in a way, my key message would be that we cannot separate gender and educational success, and we have to really think through education mm. policies also under this perspective. And if, if we would really take it seriously and become more gender sensitive, there are some questions maybe simply to ask. And it concerns, for example, facilities. How are schools built, and do they really cater for the different needs of boys and girls also in our societies? Do they cater for maybe the, the, the space they need to interact to, to also be sporty and so on? What is the feeling of belonging? Do boys and girls have the same feeling of belonging to schools, that schools is really something which, which is owned by them? So obviously boys don't feel that in a very same way. Then feeling being felt safe and respected if you think at curricula, mm. but also at buildings. So I think there's, there's an issue to look there and really have this also a bit more in mind. The sense of purpose, what does it bring to me mm -hmm. to invest in learning and the ambition for my future, this obviously is very much gender-shaped. And I think if we would ask boys and girls nowadays in, across the world, in Europe, in the, in the Americas, in Africa, in Asia, how they perceive learning and how, and, and how they perceive their schools, I think we would get very different replies and we would get also strong replies which focus on exactly these gender differences. And probably listening to them, we would also start to build our schools differently and, and have a different mm. environment for them. Mm -hmm. So, so my, my point on this overall, without denying in any way that we are discussing on totally different levels and, and with a totally different scale of problems and uh, magnitude of problems, 
I think that uh, gender-sensitive education is, is key. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that we don't address it. It is not that, but it actually it means that we address it and look at gender also in, in different aspects. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. I'd like to open the floor now to uh, snappy questions and comments from you. We've had some very inspiring uh, interventions. We've heard about the problems. We've heard about the solutions. There are some solutions that I think we haven't discussed yet about the role of the EU in accession talks, for instance, uh, how important should girls' education be when we're talking about countries coming in? Shouldn't we put it higher up on the agenda? Market economy and all the rest of it, but girls' education. Same thing for the official development aid we give. Uh, shouldn't we make that a criteria? And what about countries that spend so much on defense and military, much more than they spend on education, especially girls' education? Shouldn't we name and shame them? And one campaign does name and shame them. Uh, but I think we need more public shaming of countries that put this in a, in a, in a, in a drawer as a footnote. And I'm, uh, I'm very, very convinced that that's what we're going to be doing. So let me turn to you. Uh, I've got Xavier Pats also here. Xavier was Director General for Education, now works for Teach for All. And I was just wondering, now that you're in the NGO sector, looking at the European Commission, the hierarchy, the bureaucracy, shouldn't we be doing more as Europeans for girls' education? Well, uh, <laughs> I think what I find really, really shocking in this discussion is that you know, the distance between the scale of the problem, mm. I mean, we're talking about institutionalized torture uh, and extremely simple measures. So the scale of the problem, how universal it is, mm. how actually known the solutions are as opposed to other areas, and how little attention this deserves from policymakers, that is really shocking. I mean, it is really extraordinary. This is why Gender equality is the unfinished business of the 21st century, and it is a business that, of which we know the solutions. And I'll give an example, maternal mortality. It's a very simple indicator. It, there's a 2030 agenda target. Eight, women out, of, no, eight out of 100,000 live births in the, in the EU, 500 in low-income countries. Uh, how is it possible that we are not doing more in that so I just think that in the end of the day, if I had to give a simple answer, I think that there is a real problem of simple political will. Um, the EU has many agreements of, with low-income countries okay. where it is one of the first donors of uh, international assistance. Therefore, yeah. it drives what other donors do. And there's a choice there of what problems you think should be dealt with and what kind of conditionality you apply. So whether you put more conditionality on gender as an issue, or on gender mainstream, meaning on the gender dimension of other policies, infrastructure, etc. Exactly. It is a matter of political will. Yeah. And therefore, that is the simple answer, is the political will. Matter. Political will, yeah. And I also would like to say, because, you know, I think we should not underplay the difference between the situation within the EU and developed countries. Sure, sure, sure. Within the EU, we have, I think, so much information. I mean, the European Institute for Gender Equality is yeah. a small outfit up there in Lithuania, it doesn't have decision-making capacity, but it provides all the evidence you need on the gender dimension of EU policies. There is a, there is a scoreboard. Uh, there is a, uh, a, 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 so the information is there. Yeah. It's just a matter of political will. And my last comment would be as to whether the Commission be doing more or less. I mean, I, I, it's just too easy just having gone out of the Commission. So <laughs> yeah. but, but I do not see a reason why, for example, the, the next commission should not be should not have gender parity in its composition. Absolutely, it's a matter of political will. It can be done. 
it's difficult to preach gender equality in other areas when you don't practice yourself. So this is one issue I hope will be on the table in the next debate, for example, when it comes to parliamentary hearings in the Absolutely. And, and we at Friends of Europe absolutely intend to make sure that that is raised uh, in the parliamentary hearings, etc. So thank you very much indeed, Xavier. I have a question uh, at the back, uh, Augusta. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, it's a fascinating forum. I really appreciate it. I work for the European Commission also. Um, I just wanted to follow up on an, on an issue uh, that Susanna mentioned, and uh, by looking at the facts that you listed here, one of them, um, girls are likely to consider a career in tech five times less than boys. I just wanted to provide a little bit of a more nuanced approach to this because tech is not only information technology. And uh, as PISA clearly shows, uh, there is no difference in terms of uh, interest uh, among between boys and girls in terms of their interest uh, to study, uh, to follow STEM studies. Uh, there, I disagree with uh, the notion that there is some sort of a pernicious, Inherent, yeah. a pernicious <laughs> atmosphere of bias or stuff. It just, to me, sounds like uh, uh, not based on any evidence. Actually, uh, the PISA shows that about, as I said, a uh, quarter of all 15-year-olds are interested in pursuing STEM careers. The difference, there is a difference in the gender, uh, in the, uh, in the uh, areas of STEM expressed. Right. And I don't think we should go into this. I mean, why should we denigrate the choices that our young women make uh, in terms of biotechnology is no less high tech. No, fair point. Than information. Yeah. Medical, being a medical doctor is far more sophisticated yeah, exactly. than being a programmer. So I think we have to just be more uh, attuned and look not necessarily at the discrimination and bias issue, but look at other uh, possible uh, social and cultural factors. Thank you. Thank you very much. Now let's get some more questions and comments from the floor. It's really interesting. I've got four hands up and all guys, which is good. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but it's a very good thing, in fact. Thank you. But uh, let's also get some uh, women uh, questions from, from women. So please, go ahead yourself and then at the back. Short and snappy. Renesh, I'm a European Commission speaking in a private capacity. Well, I have a solution for your problem. You just force every female participant who registers for this event to bring one male colleague or friend. Because indeed, we feel outnumbered here, and this is not good, especially if you always say that decision-making in Brussels is very much male. So please do that. Question Good on motivation. Um, what is on the second, uh, the last page here, is very convincing as a narrative for us who are educated. But I'm wondering how can we translate this narrative into something that a woman who has the choice maybe to send her daughter into education but doesn't understand all the, the figures and the leverage that is presented here. So in practical terms, what can you do to explain to those who can send their daughters that what you listed here on the last but one page and is very convincing for us? Thank you very much. So what is the argument to be used? And I, I'll come back to you in a second. Quick question at the back and then Patricia here in front. It's a very quick question and maybe counterintuitive. Do you think that single-sex education could be helping girls in get better education? Thank you. Thank you. Very, very relevant question. Patricia, please, could you bring the microphone here? Thank you, Gustav. 
Thank you very much, and thanks to all the panellists. A, a, a quick comment first. Um, I think the point about role models is an incredibly important one. Also from the European Commission. Exactly, no, <laughs> yeah. and I'm coming to that, actually, and very briefly. But, but I think uh, Banjo's example is very good because very often we ask women and girls, who is your role model, expecting them to talk about abstract people. Even people like Malala are, are, are relatively abstract, but normal people like your mother. I mean, a role model for me was my aunt who was a, mm. a doctor. She was the only woman in her class. She, it's a very long time ago. Those sort of people and I, are, are incredibly important. I have a friend, I, I spoke to Suzanne just before we started, I have a friend who regards herself, and she's right, she and her husband are feminists. They have two little girls. They think that they're very well-adjusted in terms of how they present gender to their kids. And she was horrified a little while ago when she was on a flight, and her eldest daughter, who was about six at the time, asked, Mum, is it possible for women to become pilots? Yeah, right. He had never heard a pilot's voice that, was, that wasn't male before, so role models incredibly important. My question really to, to you and to the room is, what can we do as policymakers to help that? Because I think it's a very, mac a very micro thing, but I think at a macro level there must be something we can do as policymakers. And second question, not question, but plea really is, you're right about the European Commission, we need better gender balance. Things are improving, for sure. I think over the course of the last five years, we've, we're almost at 40% in terms of middle and senior management. But for the political leadership, I would encourage you and other NGOs to put pressure on those who can influence the composition of the next commission, because it would be a very good thing. Believe me, we are. And it's a, <laughs> and it's a struggle that's going to keep on going. Let me take one, one or two quick questions, uh, and then I'm going to go back to all of you to get your insights. So please, uh, uh, Katya. Yeah. My name is Katya. I'm from Unilever, from the private sector. So thank you, um, Gita, for mentioning the, the importance of the private sector here. I could share a lot of things what we have been doing at Unilever in regards to um, girls with a lot of other governments. And my question would be very much on how can we make it easier to facilitate dialogue between private sector and the EU um, around issues like this? One uh, uh, suggestion is join our panels. <laughs> so, uh, very grateful for that comment, and of course, uh, we see a lot of your advertising is changing and changing perceptions as well, and going against stereotypes, so that's, that's good. Okay, one, one last uh, question uh, from, from the floor. Uh, don't be shy, I need that question, and I'm going to go to one of you, or a comment. So, please, young lady. Augusta, yes, you. Yeah, um, for countries like Latin America or even in Africa, even though I don't know that much about the circumstances, we have a lot of issues to deal with security. And it, in terms of engaging with the communities and having a talk with them about why they're not sending the girls to school or the risks that they face just on their walks to school because of how they dress, how they think, or having an opinion, how can as policymakers, how can you protect kind of engaging in those things? Because, for example, myself, as a, as, as a sociologist or maybe a future policymaker, I'm scared of going back to my own country and engaging in those conversations. So what would be an advice or what would mm -hmm. be, yeah, to face those kinds of challenges that even high up in institutions we face, discrimination and sexism? 
Right. Okay. Thank you very much indeed. I'm going to turn back to the panel. Okay. Let's start with you, uh, Bangio. Uh, there was there were questions about role models, and you know what 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 can we do together uh, to change the this current situation? Would you like to answer some of the the points that were made about political will, about yeah, your experiences? Yes, please. Uh, what we do. Uh, maybe I can give you an example on what we do uh, in the DAB. Of course, when you want to, in, to talk with the community, you can't just come all the way. For example, you come all the way from Belgium and you come and tell them, you know what, this is what you're supposed to do. Stop female genital mutilation. Stop early marriage. No, that won't work. And it won't work forever. What we do is uh, we engage the community. How? People like me. I come from the Somali community. Mm-hmm. One thing, I respect my culture. I respect my religion. I know how, they, my, how my community reacts, what they do. Mm-hmm. I know what is right and what is wrong. When I engage them, I go to them personally as a Somali girl, not as an educated Somali girl, mm-hmm. as a Somali girl. I talk to them. We start with what they know. We talk Today we are going to talk about FGM. Tell us about FGM and why do you do FGM? Just try to reason with them first of all. When they tell you, yes, FGM is... Of course, sometimes they're confused. They don't know FGM. Is it culture? Is it religion? Mm-hmm. They'll tell you, no, FGM is religion. Okay. Then you tell them, no, FGM is culture. This culture is outdated. So we sit down, we reason. What do we do? We stop. FGM. We call the mother, we call the father, we sit down at a household level, we discuss. Once the father and the mother agrees, you don't, uh, you, when they agree on what you've uh, told them, the next step is we engage the, uh, the, the leaders, whether they are religious leaders or uh, the other leaders, you call them, you sit in a forum, you convince them. Of course, nobody, no society, whatever you say, the society will not take it immediately. It's a process. Mm. Give them time. We talk. Then these are the people that we are going to spearhead uh, the campaign. And that's it. Slowly by slowly, you'll see a lot of changes. And uh, probably it's going, it's going to stop. And, yes. and do you see that, Bangyo? Do you see attitudes changing towards child marriage, FGM, etc.? Do you see yes. that? Yeah? Yes. That There's must be encouraging. Must be encouraging for you. Yes, so much. Uh, compared to five years ago, at least the level has gone down. And the community are enlightened. My Somali community, they are enlightened now. They know what is right and what is wrong. Mm. Because at a household level, the mother is usually the first person who comes with the idea. But mm. now she knows FGM is not good. The side effects of the FGM, what is the outcome later. She knows that uh, uh, even the government uh, does not allow anybody, any child to get married before the age of 18. She knows it's a criminal offense. She's going to be taken to the cell. It's like now they're enlightened, not like before. Mm-hmm. It's like do it at your own discretion. Okay. Yes. So it's information that you provide and, and, and con- that sort of convinces them. Constant information. Yes. Okay. There's also, we also use uh, other channels, like uh, we have community forums. We also have the, the media. We use the media. There's right. a posters. 
uh, especially when we have uh, now it's a, the new one is uh, when they have the school um, meetings when the parents go to school they are reminded right. still that um, the child the children has to go to school they no FGM stop FGM so it's everywhere okay yes thank you thank you Vangio Gita could I bring you in from uh, uh, Sarajevo, thank you very much for listening to all of us. Uh, there were several questions about political will, about single-sex education, the argument to use uh, to change things uh, around, and, uh, yeah, political leadership keeps coming back. Your mm -hmm. points. Thank you so much, and, and thank you for all of the excellent questions from the, um, from the audience. Let me try and be brief in the interest of allowing time for others to speak as well. I think the issue of political will is absolutely key, and I would say that for the European Union in particular, and I'm, I'm of course sitting in Bosnia and Herzegovina, this could be something that becomes very much um, a priority for the EU accession countries. For example, to have gender parity at preschool, primary, secondary levels to have a certain target of enrollment of girls. Uh, we're not quite at 100%, I believe, in all of the countries, but to close that gap. So very simple things that uh, actually would bring about more transformative change. So that's one concrete suggestion. The issue of safety in schools was mentioned by one of the speakers, and I think that's extremely important. We have many good uh, practice examples in our region. We have schools free from violence. These are initiatives that we're doing in Serbia, for example, uh, in Croatia, uh, also in Ukraine. We're starting that now also in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So really, it doesn't, um, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We know to a large extent what works in our region in terms of making schools a safe place. It does require political leadership at the level of the school, as well as at the level of the ministries of education, of course. Mm -hmm. And that can be also supported by the European Union and uh, other members of the international community. Um, I want to um, talk as well about the importance of role models that several people have alluded to, fully agree, and it's one of the things that we're seeing globally as well, that, uh, for example, to encourage girls and women to pursue non-traditional careers in STEM and ICT, it helps for them to have role models and even more to have mentors in these fields uh -huh. that they can aspire to. Yeah. So this is something that we're doing in countries like South Africa, for example, in Kyrgyzstan as well. Uh, matching up girls in schools who are interested in these careers with women in STEM and in ICT. And I think that's very, very important, and that can also be supported by policy decisions um, as well. The last point I want to make is, is really, um, is in many ways for me the most important. Education gives girls choices, and that's why it's so important. And what they choose, of course, we must respect their decisions in terms of career opportunities and livelihoods. Um, but they must be given the opportunity to make the best choice with the best information. And that's why education is so empowering for girls. And also, you know, let's not forget the boys as well who are disadvantaged in, in, in some parts of the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gita. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Larissa, please. Uh, I mean, I have to uh, agree with a lot of what is said, and I really want to underline the point that my colleague Bangio has actually said. It's just so important to bring the voices of those that have been um, affected by by these things that we're talking about at the forefront of the conversation. In, in our work at Teach for Armenia and at Teach for All, our fellows who are these teachers in these public schools and the most underserved public schools of our 
of our world um, are actually serving as those role models, are serving as mod- as um, examples, women and men. And you know, I I wrote a I sourced a, a lot of stories from from the eleven thousand children that we work with uh, today in Armenia, and it's just incredible how much work goes into working with the families and not just hosting them for one or two hour session once or twice a year but our fellows live in these villages they they live in the houses that you know that they share houses with with um, the the families that they're serving if they don't have water our fellows don't don't have water if they need to walk uh, to school and might see a few bullets go by then that's you know that's what they're going to need to do and I think it takes time I think it takes um, a real commitment and it takes genuine authentic conversation and it cannot go top down it needs to go bottom up and so that's why when we recruit our fellows we're also recruiting people who are from those communities we're mm-hmm. recruiting people who share a, a common socioeconomic background to to the students that they're teaching and that's why we have numerous stories now around how some parents wanted to marry their daughter off at 15, and after a year of our fellow working with with the family, working meaning going to their house, breaking bread with them, having tea with them. Um, uh, you know, this girl is now 17, and she's in university, and she's studying to be an engineer. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot, a lot of stories like this, but it's just so human and it's so complex. Mm-hmm. And there's so much cyclical, historical things that we're dealing with that one policy or or one session or one forum is not going to change this. It has to be a systemic, collective effort, and it has to be led by the people that we serve. Mm-hmm. Um, we are in a position of privilege. We can facilitate. We can connect resources together. But right. it's those people who need to be at the forefront of this. So, again, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And, and I think if more organizations from various domains, sectors, could have this kind of mentality mm-hmm. and this kind of approach, I think we could see true magic happen. Mm-hmm. True magic happened. Thank you very much indeed. Suzanne, let's get your point of view. So I would also like to agree to the things said before. I was just wondering, while well, listening to the debate and, and the question of, of gender and how to influence policy making or how to influence projects and, and, and so on, we always had this, this idea of gender mainstreaming. I think it's, a, mm. it's an important fact, but mainstreaming always has this touch of the kiss of death to any policy. Absolutely. Because it is mainstreamed, it's gone. And um, I was wondering <laughs> if, if it is more like not looking necessarily at conditionalities, which is how important, but also looking more at gender impact. Because we are looking in many policies, we are looking at social impacts, we are looking at economic impacts, we are looking at ecological ep- impacts, but we, we hardly ever right. look systematically at gender, gender impact. Mm-hmm. And I think in some policies we might come to the conclusion that, okay, there is no impact on, on gender, but in many, and surprisingly many, we might exactly find the opposite. Mm-hmm. Matt? So many good questions and good comments. I mean, I agree, just like everybody, with, with uh, most of the things that said that were said here. I mean, let me focus on two two things. Mm-hmm. One is, I, I, perhaps I misspoke when I talked about attitudes being at the last of my list. I mean, obviously they're fundamental, um, as the discussion has shown. I mean, and I think one of the challenges of this is that we're talking about an urgent crisis: 130 million girls out of school, hundreds of millions more in bad schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but the solution to that is not fast. And it is going to be slow. We're talking, as you said, about cultural transformation. So what are the ways to affect that? 
uh, more, more quickly. And I guess uh, if, if I had to think about one of the things that would help us address this issue that Gita was talking about on um, stereotypes being reproduced in classrooms, um, but also the issue about role models, um, would be that we ought to focus much more at a policy level on training and supporting teachers. We don't actually do that. We spent the, you know, the, the Millennium Development Goals spent a lot of time on access to schools, building schools, getting girls into bad schools. Very little focus on Equality. who's in those schools teaching them. Mm -hmm. And even now, even though there's a growing consensus and momentum around girls' education, which is wonderful, there's not enough attention to school, to, to, to teachers, who, by the way, are also people who are being educated. So I think that's one thing I would really encourage us to focus on. Because I think the second thing about that is that this issue of social solidarity, mm -hmm. right? having role models, having people who will encourage you go, to go to school is really important. And I think that's something through teachers we can build a bit of that support network in. The second thing I would say is a bit on this point about um, what are the policy levers to get this taken more seriously. And I think... We, uh, uh, at the risk of mainstreaming, I don't want to make it mainstreaming. However, what I would say is, and again, back to something Gita said, which is that school quality is key. We have too many bad schools. But as you were saying, I mean, gender-sensitive education is actually better education. So what we ought to do is focus on how this agenda can help us improve school quality overall so that it becomes part of SDG 4. It doesn't become an add-on, and it's not secondary to it, but that we can show how by addressing these things you can do it. And then I think that's where you know, the commission has a really important role to play. It's one of the few uh, organizations in the world that has made a political commitment to budget support. Most, I mean, that's true. if it runs away from budget, yeah. God forbid we would ever give away that's money to a true. government and not know what's happening to yeah. it. But the EC has said, we're going to support your core commitments as a government. Th this issue, though, ought to be part of that. Yeah. Okay, fine. We're going to contribute budget support, but what's your plan? And then let's measure that and give it some attention in that. I think it's a, it actually is a very important tool that the commission has that, that many other governments just don't. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you to all of you. Uh, thank you very much indeed for all your insights and interventions. You may have noticed that this is something that I feel very passionate about. I was lucky enough to be born in a family in Pakistan. Uh, where I was born, uh, where education was really a top priority, sometimes too much of a priority. But I was, I was so lucky. And when I look around me in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa, and I wonder how many girls did not have that. And it really, really there is something very personal for me. The other thing that's personal for me is that my mother has been teaching for 20 years uh, in, a, in a school for underprivileged children. And she has told me repeatedly, she says, Shada, you know, I went to see the school and it's, it's really inspiring, I have to tell you. It's in a veranda, in a neighbor's house. It's part of a network of schools that are called veranda schools, actually, in, in Karachi. And she said to me, you know, we talk about Malala and everyone admires Malala, obviously for real reasons. She said, I know a hundred Malalas. And I met those hundred Malalas and I can tell you, these girls are empowered. Oh my God, they're empowered. So this is something that I really believe in. And I, and I think today we've really talked about the political will. And God knows in many Asian countries, Latin America, Africa, there is no political will. But here, there's also a pushback. I mean, look at what's happening in Hungary. Women are being told, you know, your place is, yeah, 
back in the kitchen. So that, you know, we have to practice in Europe. We're lucky enough to live here. We have to practice what we preach. That means new EU leadership should be uh, gender equal, right? I mean, that is something, as Xavier said, that's a no-brainer, right? We should do it. But we should also practice what we preach when it comes to using uh, the levers we have. Uh, whether it's official development aid, whether it's the budget, whether it's the trade preferences that we give to countries, whether it's the accession talks that Gita uh, mentioned as well. So we have, we have the tools. We actually just need to uh, move into action. So we talk a lot about glass ceilings, uh, but we have to remember that there are many sticky floors out there, and those sticky floors have to be cleaned up so we can all move up. So thank you once again to all of you for your very inspiring interventions, for coming, in the case of Bangyo, all the way from Africa for this conference, and to Gita for joining us uh, from Sarajevo, and Larissa coming from Armenia, Matt coming from the UK, and Suzanne walking up here from the European Commission. <laughs> thank you very much indeed.